So, speaking of the book, turn to Exodus, if you would, or follow along up here. Exodus 4, 18 to 31. And listen carefully. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then he said, then, then, then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you were a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. But the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent to him to say, and also about the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. I want to echo what Greg was saying. Thank you, Melody, for helping our children to grow, to love, and to know God's Word. And sometimes uh, you might have noticed today, sometimes God's word is a little bit strange, isn't it? Sometimes no matter how, how long you've been in God's word or you've been reading the Bible, maybe since the age of these kids, you might think to yourself, what on earth is happening here? Maybe if uh, there might be a few people here that are still waking up, let's, let's help them out. What bizarre thing just happened in our text? And there's, there's a few of them. What is probably the most bizarre thing that happened in our text? Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad. God just tried to kill Moses. Did you catch that? Which is bizarre, period. It's especially bizarre because I've been trying to make the case to you that Moses is the hero of our story, that this is the guy that God had picked to liberate his people from slavery, that I told you last week that he had this friendship with God. It's the same God, the same guy that's now getting jumped at a roadside motel on his way to Egypt by God. It's not on at all. I think it's on. It's on. Let's just keep going. Let's we'll keep going. Can you guys hear me? I'll speak loud. I think they can hear me. Um, 
me just give you a warning here. Uh, this might not be one of those sermons where you walk away thinking, I'm so glad the preacher cleared that up. I think we need to, to, to do our best to wrestle with this passage. This is a mysterious and enigmatic encounter. I think, I think it has something powerful to teach us. But here's what I want you to also see. Sometimes the Bible gives you a jolt. Sometimes scripture wakes you up. Because that's what you need more than anything. That sometimes the Bible is like a, a cold bucket of water dumped on your head. And you realize that Yahweh is not safe. Because I think that's what we see in our text today. There are two people that are not safe from Yahweh in our text today. The first is Pharaoh and the second is Moses. And we're in Exodus 4, as Greg said. If you want to follow along so you don't think I'm making stuff up, you're welcome to do that. Moses has just had this dramatic encounter with Yahweh on the mountain. God uh, has heard the cries of the people. He's seen their misery. And now God is on the move. He's going to rescue his people in Egypt. And Moses is going to be that guy that goes to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out. But Moses has got some issues. When I used to live in D.C., my wife was on a choir with this one guy. And he liked to say, I got shoes, you got shoes, we all got issues. Moses has got issues. He's got insecurities. He's got doubts. He's got fears. He's got objections. And even after all that Moses has experienced on the mountain, this assurance that the Lord would go with him, these signs that he was given, we never hear from Moses a full-throated acceptance to the commission that he was given by God. In fact, the last words that, that are still kind of hanging in the air from last week are this plea to God to send somebody else. So this guy, I just want you to see this guy heading down the mountain to go visit with Jethro. This is not exactly a picture of a guy brimming with confidence. Moses goes to his father-in-law Jethro to ask permission to go back to the people of Egypt. This is how I kind of in my mind imagine how this conversation went. Hey Jethro, hey Moses, how was your time in the wilderness? It was good, thank you. But I realize I need to go back to Egypt. Okay Moses, why do you need to go back to Egypt? Well, you know, to see if the people are still alive. That's not exactly what God told Moses, was it? Moses' job is not to go back to Egypt to scope things out. It's, to, it's not to go back to see if the people are still alive. God's already told Moses what, uh, that, that the people are alive. God has told Moses that he's heard their groaning and crying from this repressive regime. regime and I think that would indicate the people are alive. Moses is not, in other words, on a mission to gather intelligence. He's on a mission to liberate his people, which is a little different. See, the plans have been set. Yahweh has already made the call to go on the attack to liberate his people from the oppression they are experiencing in the enslavement of Pharaoh. Yahweh is, uh, is sending in the troops, so to speak. And look at verse 20. Let's see what kind of force that Yahweh has assembled here. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hands. So we've got a wife, two kids, and a donkey. Do you see why Moses might still be harboring some doubts? I'll check things out. But the Lord tells Moses in verses 21 to 23 what's going to happen. Moses is not going to Egypt to check things out. He is going to perform wonders before Pharaoh. And according to God, Pharaoh will not budge because God will harden Pharaoh's heart. 
God is, uh, Pharaoh is to let God's son go so they can worship Yahweh. But again, we get this prediction that Pharaoh will not do this, and that will lead to the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son. So we get a preview of what's going to happen in our story. We jump uh, past all the plagues that you're probably familiar with, and we get all the way to the uh, death of the firstborn son. And we hear something that's probably going to trouble many of us. We heard something in that little passage that's going to trouble us. God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And I think I've heard many, many people struggle with this, and they say, well, well that's not fair. And there's, there's more that we can say about this. We're going to keep bumping into this as we move forward, and I'll try to come back in the future. But the thing about this passage, it's only like the third strangest thing in the passage. So we can't spend too much time. But let's think about this for a minute. I think we as people who live in a, a highly powerful society uh, and culturally a highly individualistic society, I think we tend to look at this situation from Pharaoh's perspective and say, that's not fair. Pharaoh is never given a chance uh, to change his way. He's never given a fair shake here by God to do what's right. And I think from our perspective, here's what we can miss. Pharaoh is a tyrant. And Pharaoh, by this point in our story, has made countless decisions to harden his own heart. When this new Pharaoh, this is the second Pharaoh in our story, has come to power, he takes over a, a regime that's a brutal enslavement and oppression of the Hebrew people. And this Pharaoh then can, makes the decision to continue with that brutal enslavement and oppression of the Israelites. That's what's not fair in this text. Let's get that clear. That's the real injustice in this passage. And I want to point that out because I think sometimes in our perspective, again, as people who are used to having power, we get distracted and we miss the real injustice that's happening here. And that is that the Hebrew people who are a small minority people are being brutally and cruelly oppressed and enslaved by the superpower Egypt. And we will see by the time Moses comes in and begins to negotiate with Pharaoh for the release of the Hebrews, Pharaoh has has gone down such a dark path that there's no turning around. That, that in our story, we are well past the point where diplomacy will make a difference. I think the deeply troubling and tragic events from this last week in Ukraine can maybe help us get our minds around this situation. As I was working uh, through this passage this week, and like I'm sure all of you watching with horror and sadness uh, what was transpiring in Ukraine, the image of Pharaoh in my mind began to morph into the image of Vladimir Putin. See, there's so much distance between myself and the ancient Near East and a Pharaoh. There's thousands of years, there's massive cultural differences, that when I see Pharaoh in my mind, I don't see repressive and brutal tyrants. I see someone who's like a joke, like a caricature, like a cartoon. I don't know about you, but as I read this text, as Greg is reading this text, a chill didn't go down my back. But if you substitute Pharaoh's face with Vladimir Putin's face, and you substitute Pharaoh's words with Putin's words, you see the kind of person we're dealing with in our story and worse. And what became very apparent this week is that Putin had long ago decided that he was going to invade Iraq, Ukraine. In retrospect, the frantic diplomacy in the last few weeks to try to avoid this war was a sham. Putin's heart was already hard. See, tyrants today are like tyrants 3,500 years ago. Whether they're in Egypt or they're in Russia, they are brutal, they are power-hungry, 
They prey on the weak and vulnerable. They are delusional and no amount of diplomacy will stop them once they have decided what to do. The good news in our passage today is that while tyrants who reign over superpowers and use their power to suppress minority peoples, they may rule for the moment. They even may rule for decades and decades in the case of Pharaoh, who brutally oppressed the Israelites. But in the end, they are no match for Yahweh. I'm thinking of, of course, today, the people of Ukraine in the midst of their own dark moment of brutal uh, oppression. But this month is also Black History Month. And I'm also thinking of the blacks in our country who experienced their own oppression and enslavement like the Hebrew people, not for a day, not for decades, but for hundreds of years by those whose hearts had become hard. And I'm thinking as I reflect on that enslavement of African-Americans in our country, how during that long, dark, seemingly endless and hopeless time, how the slaves looked to the story of Exodus and how they found hope. They found hope because they saw in this story a God who sees the oppressed, a God who hears the cries of the oppressed, a God, a God who is deeply concerned with their suffering. Our passage for today reminds us during another dark moment in our world that God has not checked out, that our God is a God who continues to see the oppression and hear the cries and is deeply concerned. This is good news for the oppressed but it is not good news for the oppressor. This is bad news for Pharaoh because Yahweh is on the move. And in the story, Yahweh doesn't look like he's got much of a force. Yahweh's force looks a little ragtag, a small family, a donkey, and a staff. It doesn't look like much compared to the massive army that awaits Moses in Egypt, but it's plenty for Yahweh because when Yahweh is on the move, the tyrants of the world, the pharaohs of the world are not safe. Okay, But here's where things get strange in our passage. Because it turns out when Yahweh is on the move, not only are the tyrants like Pharaoh not safe, but Moses isn't safe either. And someone may be thinking, I'm with you so far, Matthew, but what are you going to do with this? Because here comes the angry God of the Old Testament. Well, let's look at closer. Let's, let's figure out if that's really, what's really happening here. Let's reread the passage that Moses is traveling to Egypt. He has this strange and mysterious encounter with Yahweh on the way in this lodging place. Uh, the Lord again meets Moses, but not on a mountain. And this time, the Lord tries to kill him, or is about to kill him. But just in the nick of time, Zipporah, Moses' wife, comes in and saves him by, by cutting off her, her son's foreskin and touching Moses' feet with it. Let me, just, let me just preface this with saying there's a little bit we know here and there's a lot we don't know here. Okay, so I'm going to do, uh, with the help of some scholars, do some speculating here. But I think we have enough information to piece something together. So first of all, let's just recognize that God did not kill Moses. Okay? In other words, I think we need to just say God did not try to kill Moses and fail. Okay? I think we can safely assume if Yahweh wants to kill Moses, Moses will be dead, okay? So God did not kill Moses. What we read in our text, if you look at it, is God was about to kill him. Notice, this is going to be important as we try to figure out this puzzle. Yahweh is giving some space to Moses. He's about to kill him, but he doesn't kill him. 
And eventually we find out that God leaves him alone. So we've got about to kill him, leaves him alone, and we've got this little space here between. Secondly, we know we can, I think we can safely assume Yahweh is pretty upset with Moses. Like this seems very clear. We don't know exactly um, how Moses is about to be killed, but if we look back in Genesis, and there's a couple stories, um, we, we could probably guess he's probably been stricken with some kind of illness, some kind of severe illness. And we also know from our text that Moses is saved by his wife Zipporah. And this is, as Christopher Wright points out, this is the sixth woman in Exodus and the second foreigner who saves Moses' life. One after the other, there's these women that save Moses' life. And the way in which Zipporah saves uh, Moses' life, it probably gives us some hints about what Moses has done to make God so angry. Because the way she saves him is by circumcising her son and touching Moses' feet with the foreskin. And again, as if this story needs to get any stranger, there's a really good chance that feet are not really feet here. Okay? That feet is a euphemism, and feet, as you might know in the Bible, is that can be a euphemism for genitalia. So by doing this, by touching Moses' feet, it very well might be that, that it's, not, it's Moses who's not circumcised, and his son's circumcision acts as a substitute for his own. That could be a possibility. We don't know. But what we do know, and seems more likely, is that for sure his son was not circumcised. And that's a problem. Because way back in Genesis, way back in Abraham, the command was to Abraham and all his descendants that every son was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Which begs the question, why is Moses' son not circumcised? Like, this is a problem. This very well might be the reason why God is so angry with Moses because he has disobeyed this commandment from God. And it seems like, it seems like we can kind of infer from our text that Moses and Zipporah are aware of this problem. Why do we know this? This doesn't seem to catch them totally by surprise. Because whatever's happened to Moses, he's, you know, he's sprawled out on the ground, he's about to die. Zipporah knows what's happening. How does she know what's happening? She knows exactly what to do to save Moses. Moses is sprawled out. He's incapacitated. He's about to die. And you can, you can, I can just imagine Zipporah saying, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> so now we have this daughter of a priest who whips out this flint knife and goes to work on circumcising her son, who we could probably safely say is not a child at this point. Like, this is a crazy story. All right, so just, I just want to do a recap so we make sure this is going to be important for the point that I try to make here. We know God is upset with Moses. We know he's about to kill him. We don't know exactly what God is upset about, but from Zipporah's actions, it seems like it has something to do with circumcision. We can also guess that Zipporah and Moses have some idea about what's angering God because she knows the action that will save him. So in other words, Moses and Zipporah know that something's not right between uh, him and God. And so by doing the circumcision, this seems to rectify the problem. But why is it such a big deal? If, if we've got this right up to this point, why is this such a big deal that back at his home in Midian that Moses failed to circumcise his son? Like, does this really merit this being jumped by God on the way? Well, let's stop and think about this, why this might be so serious. Moses is about to go to the people of Israel and ask them to trust God. He's going to ask them to trust that Yahweh has seen their misery, that Yahweh is concerned about them, and that Yahweh is going to liberate them from slavery. So that's going to be a tough sell. And we're going to see at first that the Israelites will believe Moses, but they're soon going to uh, get pretty ticked off at him because the situation is going to get worse before it gets better. 
In other words, like, man, Moses, as a leader, he's going to need to trust God because this is not going to be easy. But as we've already seen it so far in our passage, Moses does not seem to trust God. He seems to be harboring doubts about this whole plan of Yahweh's. And, and Yahweh has told Moses to go to Egypt to liberate his people, but that's not the message that Moses is passing on. Moses says he's going to go see if the people are still alive. Moses seems to be still struggling with his task of, of passing on Yahweh's message accurately. And it's not only that the doubts are not only manifesting themselves in, in his words, but his actions, because now it looks like he's clearly disobeying Yahweh, uh, in this case, circumcision. Okay, so there's a lack of trust in God by Moses uh, and very well a possible blatant disobedience of God uh, that was hidden in Moses' life. Okay, and now Moses is going to go be the leader of a people and he's going to be given massive amounts of power. So think about this with me for a minute. Think about this combination. Influential leader, lots of power, holding on to a part of their life that is hidden, that is in clear disobedience of God. Leader, power, hidden disobedience. Is that not a dangerous cocktail? Think how many times we've seen this in the church. A male leader, and not to pick on men, but it's basically always a male. He's given lots of power. He has the role of speaking for God and has a part of their life that is hidden and in clear disobedience to God. It's not circumcision. It's, an, it's a hidden affair that's happening. It's a hidden addiction. It's a hidden pattern of abusing one's position of authority. We all know these stories because they pop up all the time. And they pop up by very prominent and very powerful Christian leaders who we probably at one time said, no way. And it doesn't just happen among prominent, prominent Christian men leaders. It happens in little churches like our own all over the country. When you combine power and hidden disobedience, that is a toxic and destructive combination, not just for the man or for his family, but the fallout, the damage, the destruction, it spreads far and deep and wide. And I'm assuming none of these men set out on this path. Because usually this path starts out with small hidden acts of disobedience and not trusting the Lord, like what Moses is doing in our passage. But by the end, the fallout is massive. And here's the jolt. Here's the jolt in the passage. The best thing that can happen to someone in that situation who's on that destructive path is to have what happened to Moses happen to them. To be jumped by God in the middle of the night. To find yourself in a position, in Moses' case, as I said, probably writhing on the ground, where there is no mistaking that God has got your attention. That is the best thing that can happen to you if you were on that path. You see, I want you to see here, this is a tough text. This is a text of grace. Let me say that again. God's surprise attack on Moses in the middle of the night is an act of grace. How can it be an act of grace? Because God doesn't kill Moses. Because God is about to kill Moses. Meaning God has Moses' attention. Meaning God has graciously and mercifully given Moses the space for repentance to change something before it's too late. Yes, God attacks Moses. But that's because that's exactly what Moses needed. Because that attack gives Moses a chance to change the course of his life. Here's the deal. God is a God of love. 
That's absolutely revealed in the entirety of Scripture through and through. We know that through God's words and through God's actions, that God is a God for us. Nowhere is that seen more clearly on the cross as God and the person of Jesus gives his very life for us. But listen to me. Don't mistake a loving God for a safe God. I'm thinking here, you, you, you all probably know this story, many of you. I'm thinking of the well-known exchange in C.S. Lewis, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia between Mr. Beaver and Lucy and Susan about Aslan the lion. And Susan asked Mr. Beaver, who is Aslan? He's the king. And when he comes, he'll put all to rights. Is he safe? Susan asked. I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver chimes in, that you will, dearie. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, says Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's the good. He's the king, I tell you. Don't mistake a loving God for a safe God. God is not safe. And that is good news. Because that means God is not, that the Putins and the Pharaohs of the world are not safe from Yahweh. That Yahweh is the real king. But it's sobering too. Because God is not safe from Moses either. And the goodness of grace can be seen in God by giving Moses an opportunity to change. Moses is changed by this near-death experience immediately. It's subtle, but look at the text. I didn't see this till the very end of it, but this is fascinating to me. Okay, I told you about what he, what he recounted to, to Jethro, but look at the next time, he, after this encounter with God, he meets with Aaron, hasn't seen his brother in 40 years, and we read that he tells Aaron everything that the Lord had sent him to say. Next exchange. They then go on to, to Egypt, Aaron and Moses together. What do we read? They tell the Israelites, the elders, everything the Lord had said to Moses. Did you hear that? After this attack, Moses begins to tell people everything the Lord has said to him. No more of this, like, I'm going to go down and see if, if the people are still alive. No, M Moses starts to shoot straight. Moses has changed. He is absolutely changed by this dramatic encounter with God, this enigmatic surprise attack, because he's speaking truth. He's not perfect, okay? He's not perfect. We'll see that. He's a changed man. He's a chastened man. Let's bring this home a little closer. I think this applies to all of us, but I'm going to speak to the men in our congregation. Not because this doesn't apply to women, but from my experience, I've heard way, way more stories about this excuse me, involving men than women. And this, I don't, this might sound like an attack. I want you to hear this as an attack of grace. If there's anything you are hiding, if there's something in your life like Moses that you know is in a clear disobedience to the Lord, but you have chosen to ignore it, you have chosen to kept it, keep it hidden, or if you have made peace with this disobedience, a couple things. One, what you think is hidden is not going to stay hidden forever. What you think is hidden right now will eventually come out. Most likely it will come out in this lifetime. Here's the reality. There's a good chance it's already out that you just don't even realize it. If you manage to keep this disobedience hidden until you die, it will most likely come out after you die. And even if you've, if you've somehow been able to manage this where you can hide it to well past your death, it will, I guarantee you, come out in the life to come. 
okay? Please, please don't mistake God for a pushover who will turn a blind eye to your disobedience. If you think that you are wrong, God will not tolerate it. Okay, that's the first thing. It will not stay hidden. Secondly, for your own good, deal with this. If there's something you are hiding in your life that is in clear disobedience of God, for your own work, good, do the hard work of facing it and bringing it out into the open. And I know that sounds painful, trust me. Here's the deal. As painful as that might sound, to bring it out in the open, you are failing to recognize how much pain it is causing you right now. When you hide something, it will eat you up inside and it will eventually destroy you. I'm not going to tell you that God struck them down. But I know of at least two stories of men who for long periods of time kept things hidden from their families, kept things hidden from their congregations, and for years and years, all this duplicity and deception eventually seemed to drive them to their graves. And if you are thinking to yourself right now, well, I am doing this for the sake of my family. I am hiding this for their own good. Do not kid yourself. Do not dupe yourself into believing that you are protecting them from pain. Trust me, you are wrong. It is already either out, it is already, already out or it will come out. Don't think to yourself, I've worked this out with God in my head and we're good. You're not good. Look at the scene in our text. It is a painful scene. Moses is on the, he's on the ground writhing. He's about to die. He just got jumped by the Lord. Zipporah, she's got to whip out a flint knife and circumcise her grown son. The grown son has to be circumcised on the spot. Do you see, this is a brutal, painful scene. This is a scene filled with blood, pain, and tears. Because bringing out what is hidden is painful, period. But don't miss that this is a scene of grace. It's a scene of mercy. God's about to kill Moses. About. Meaning God has given Moses a chance to change. There is space for time and repentance. God gives Moses a jolt, but it's what he needed. He needed a jolt. He needed a wake up. It's a surprise attack that saves Moses. It's a surprise attack that gives him the chance to repent, to bring this disobedience out into the open and deal with it. God is not safe, but he's good. Do not ignore what God is trying to wake up in your life. Don't put off what you know needs to be addressed. Like if this is you, uh, I don't know if it's you, but if it's you and you want to come talk to me, if you don't want to talk to me, talk to someone in the leadership team. Do not walk away from here and just hope that this will go away. Do not miss this chance that God is giving you to repent. God is not safe but he is good. He's a God of mercy and grace who loves you and wants to give you this jolt because he loves you.